Hello and welcome to Revise, Rebut and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography, an avid science communicator and a still relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, resubmitting, and having their first academic paper published. This podcast is very kindly supported by the DSI-NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. Dr. Sarah Rofe is a postdoctoral fellow in the Evolutionary Studies Institute at the University of the Witwatersrand, currently exploring the Miocene origins of rainfall seasonality in Southern Africa. Prior to this, she completed her PhD in geography, exploring more contemporary shifts in the South African rainfall zones over recent decades. It is from this work for her PhD that she published her first academic journal article. Sarah has certainly caught the publication bug, having published four papers from her PhD so far and with another under review. Welcome, Sarah. It's wonderful to have you on this podcast. Thank you for such a lovely introduction and I'm happy to be here. So Sarah, let's start off with telling the audience a little bit about your first paper and what it was on and where it was published. The first paper that I published was a review of South African rainfall seasonality mapping and the methods that have been undertaken for mapping and classification of our rainfall seasonality zones. And in essence, it was looking at the strengths and limitations of these methods, and then how we can move towards a better way in which the rainfall seasonality of South Africa can actually be mapped. Because what we found from that paper was that there were a lot of attempts at mapping rainfall seasonality, but there was not a strong agreement, particularly if you were to move towards uh, away from South Africa's main summer and winter rainfall zones, and you would try and consider where the year-round rainfall zone really is. So that was the first paper. And it, we published it eventually in South African Geographical Journal. So I just want to begin by saying a huge congratulations, because that's a very challenging first paper to write, and that it's both a review paper and, in a sense, a, a meta-analysis and a piece of work that really critically engages with approaches that have been used, as well as the actual output maps that were produced. So a, a tremendous accomplishment that that is your first paper. And I just want to say a very, very huge well done to you on that. Thank you. <laughs> so you said to us that eventually it was published in the South African Geographical Journal. Uh, can you take us through what that means and perhaps the journey up to it being published in the South African Geographical Journal? So, as you've already highlighted, it was a paper written from scratch. It was initially supposed to be a literature review chapter in my PhD, and then we decided, cool, we need a paper to have been, at the very least, accepted before handing in the PhD. So, then we decided let's write that paper from scratch and the first attempt was to submit it to a royal the royal geographical society journal which is called the geographical journal and the first round of revisions came out as a rejection 
which was helpful because there were really great comments, but it was it was quite heartbreaking as the first submission was a rejection. But at the very least, I could use those comments to then rework the paper and submit it to my next journal choice, which was the South African Geographical Journal. And luckily then it was accepted. I think it's really important to reflect on that because I think for many people who approach their first paper, a lot of emphasis is put into the process of writing up a paper. And there's not much information about that review process and about the possible outcomes. And I think for many people, it's quite a surprise to get a rejection. And certainly my first paper that I published was rejected many times from many journals before we eventually had it published somewhere after a lot of revision. So I think it would be quite useful for our listeners to hear about that process of receiving the rejection and for you, what it took to then be able to face those comments and revise the paper and feel confident to send it somewhere else? So I was quite lucky that I had a really great supervisor who sat with me and helped me go through the comments and how I would go about addressing each of the comments, because some of them were quite harsh. There was one comment that sort of it sort of emphasized the thought of they're not, the reviewer was not quite sure of where the merit in the paper was. And seeing a comment like that at first glance when you get the reviews back is, it, it's flowing to your, your ego at the same time. It, it really, yeah, it, it kind of hurts. At a second thought of it, you know, you see those comments and then you put them away and then and in essence, what I had done was I just, I really, I put them away for about a week or so maybe. And then I decided, okay, I can now look back at them and try to address them all. And as I mentioned, I, I was lucky that my supervisor, being you, was really helpful in actually, you know, how do you go about addressing such comments from a review? Because it's very different. It's very different to say getting comments back from a master's thesis where you know it's it's much easier to address those comments but from a review from a journal it's definitely much more difficult especially with further experience from other papers yeah and i think that's something interesting to touch on is is how that has evolved then with your experience with further papers because I think it's so important, particularly when you get a rejection, to be able to really critically engage with the reasons for the rejection and the comments and, and where they are constructive and they would lead to the improvement of the paper, whether it be in clarifying the point of the paper or the contribution to knowledge, or perhaps in revisiting some of the analysis. There are times when those rejections are very valuable, but I think there are also times when there are rejections which are perhaps unfair or the comments are not very usable. I think it would be useful to reflect on that in your experience in having written more recent papers in where you understand that line to be in terms of where it's worth actually taking a lot of time and using those comments to your benefit before sending it somewhere else and where you do just resubmit the paper in 
essentially its, its original format to another journal. So I think I can bring up two publications that fit on both sides of the spectrum. A very recent one that I tried to publish in Climatic Change. In essence, I got the reviews back and a lot of them almost felt as if the reviewers didn't necessarily engage with the paper as you would expect a reviewer to do so. Because if they're accepting to review a paper, you know, they should rightfully engage with it as is necessary. So that paper, I changed a few things and clarified a few things, specifically the methods of the paper. And then we've submitted it to another journal. Then there was another paper that I had and it was originally submitted to the International Journal of Climatology. And again, it's another high-ranked journal. So you may expect a rejection at first, but I was very confident in that paper. And when I saw that it was rejected, I was very shocked, actually. And to get the rejection, it, it took some time to go through the comments, but actually despite being very shocked, the comments were really reasonable and they were very valid in trying to improve on the paper because the next submission was also another rejection. And then the third submission that I made, finally, it was seeming as if, you know, it would be accepted, but there were major, major, major revisions that were required. So in trying to think of how these reviews have actually help with my writing. A lot of it I can even apply to my writing currently. And a lot of the issues I had at first would come down to actually honing in on the merits of the paper. I would say that that's something I struggled with quite a bit and probably still struggle with or still struggle with today. And I feel like I've come forward in, the, in that process because a lot of the reviewers have highlighted that and some had suggested some ways on how to work towards improving that kind of writing. So I would at least say that, that the review process has helped with clarifying my writing a lot more and helped me to develop more direction in how I am actually writing. I think it's so wonderful that you're able to simultaneously reflect on and hold the negative and the positive aspects of the review process and to acknowledge the fact that it does hurt when you get these rejections, particularly when you think it's a strong paper, but also being able to put it on the shelf long enough that you can return to those comments and really see value in them. And I think that's so immensely helpful. But I do want to, to ask you, given this experience of having so many rejections um, in the PhD process because you were targeting these really, really top journals. Do you think that if you were to have gone back in time, you would have preferred to send that work to perhaps a local journal as your first submission or a journal with a less stringent peer review process, two instead of three reviewers? Uh, would you have changed that in retrospect? Or do you think that there was enough benefit from that process that, that it's worth it? I don't think I would have changed it. Actually, maybe originally I might have, in my mind, thought, you know, it would have been better to change it. At the very least, this recent paper I submitted to 
climatic change. Prior to it, I was a bit nervous about the paper and I was thinking of submitting it to a lower impact journal. But in saying that, I also, I also received really good advice from you, of course, in that it's probably a better idea to, to aim for these high journals. And I completely agree with that because I've got very good feedback. In fact, the paper that was rejected three times is possibly my favorite paper that has been published. And I would probably say that I'm most proud of it because the comments that came out of it, they've actually not only did it help to improve that paper, but it's also helped guide my research in a new direction. And it's also given me confidence because one of the comments that really stuck in and one of the reviewers was not really letting go of that comment was to actually apply. The paper was testing a method to quantify rainfall seasonality across South Africa. And the reviewer was really trying to hone in on okay, so if this method is successfully applicable to station data, it should also be tested on gridded data sets. And I had never applied, I'd never worked with such data sets. So it put me on my toes and it made me, at that review comment, like I had to address it. And, you know, eventually, eventually I, the application to gridded data was successful. And now it's something that, I can undertake in my research. So having sent it to a lower impact journal, it probably would have got accepted and I wouldn't have been able to gain that extra skill. So I think that paper is the biggest reason uh, why I will continue submitting to really high impact journals. Yeah, I think that's really, really valuable input there, Sarah, and that it is sometimes these comments that open up an area of research or an approach to analysis or a particular methodology that we wouldn't have otherwise thought to engage with or thought to attempt. So a really, really important point there. I want to reflect a bit about on the, the writing process. And so the, a question about how you have been able to develop, and we can talk about the first paper, but I think it also does apply to your later papers, to develop a sense of boundaries around where one paper begins and ends and where the next one starts. Um, particularly when you think about a PhD and uh, writing a papers after you finish the PhD is being able to determine, I guess, how many papers there are, but also where the story of each paper lies. And perhaps you could just talk us through from your side where how that process plays out of where you see each of your papers as being distinct from each other? Sure. I feel like that's something I'm still very, <clears throat> I'm still struggling with. I would, I would actually say sometimes it's hard to really formulate the story of the paper. And I think that stems down to from the get-go, having a clear understanding of what it is that this paper should achieve. And sometimes, and a lot of the time, I think, I really struggle with that because you're generating so many results and 
there's so much that's so interesting that it's hard to keep to one story and one clear path. Whereas in my first attempt, I recall the first draft. So this was after the re first review paper. It was the first draft of the, the ratio paper that was rejected um, three times. <laughs> but what I had done was I'd sort of referred to back to my PhD and then I had referred to my other papers and I actually didn't put the story together quite clearly. And I think that is a good learning lesson and it's something I'm still on the journey with on really how to put that story together. It's it's a tough one actually. Yeah, I think I think it is for everyone. It's a challenge to be able to head out and collect a lot of data and do a huge amount of analysis and then sift through that and pick up a coherent storyline and decide how to frame that within the 6,000 or 8,000 words or 20 pages or whatever the limit might be. And I certainly don't think you're alone there. The last question I want to ask you, Sarah, is about expanding or perhaps even we could say shifting your research focus and from your honors and masters in air quality to your PhD in seasonality and then taking that seasonality from the contemporary to the paleo record and, and zooming into the Miocene. And perhaps you can just reflect on what that process has entailed for you, but also how that then frames your approach to publication and, and your approach to writing about probably quite distinct and unique scientific fields. I think that process really highlights that I have a lot of interests. Luckily, they all focus on Southern Africa. So at least we have the one study area down, but it really highlights that it's difficult to continue in one really forward direction in one specific type of scientific field. And I think for myself, I still have interests in air pollution where my master's and my honors were set at. And I still certainly have interests in contemporary climate and now moving towards my postdoc, which is more of a paleoclimate background. At the very least with my postdoc, it was supposed to be more based on proxy records, but with issues with COVID, I didn't get out to do field work. So as much as it's still based on um, paleoclimate, it's a lot, it's, its focus has shifted towards paleoclimate modeling. So as much as my research fields are quite, quite broad across one another, there's quite a clear pathway or a clear connection between the, the various fields. And a lot of it stems down to modeling. And at the very least, I have some I have some thoughts on how I would like to model. I would like to consider modeling for air pollution. At the same time, I would like to consider it for climate, both past and present periods, because a lot of the focus on the past periods was these past really warmer periods, which is something to consider in life for future climate change. So to bring back to the actual question in how to guide my thoughts across these different domains of, of research. And I think uh, it's quite challenging actually. And I've completely done this to myself because I have a lot of, a lot of different interests. 
but it it is quite difficult to to keep up with literature in all of those various fields so i definitely know that at the least going forward i would like to streamline my thoughts a bit better but i'm not sure how how great or how much i will actually get to do that <laughs> Well, as somebody who has incredibly divergent research interests, I'm definitely not the person to come to for advice on that. <laughs> but I do think I do think it is very interesting because a lot of people who are in the position you were in a couple of years ago as a, an early career researcher and as a student, I think there is a perception that what you start off with, and it might be something as small as an honors project, dictates your research trajectory for life. And I think it's so valuable to see that you can do an honors project on air pollution and a PhD on contemporary climatology and a postdoc on paleoscience. And as long as, as you've said, there is something common to them, a study region, a set of methodologies, a way of thinking and a way of understanding systems around you, that there is actually a lot more flexibility than we often think. And I, I do Think that that's a really important message for people to hear. Yes, that's actually that's actually a great point that I never considered. I always worried that my my very broad interests might be an issue for myself in as a future future researcher. But actually, in these past few months, I've been chatting to various people because, of course, I need a. Uh, my postdoc finishes at the end of this year and what's helped me there is my broad interests have actually opened up a number of positions that if you were streamlined into just one field maybe you'd have less options or fewer options at the very least of what it is you could do as like a next position because sometimes you actually can't dictate that you're going to have to go with where the availability is. So yeah, I think I think that's a great point to highlight. Yeah, what you say about availability is so true. In academia, there's so few posts that come about and being able to market yourself and market the set of skills you've developed, I think is incredibly important. So Sarah, I wanted to say a huge thank you to you for joining us on this podcast and sharing a really enjoyable view through rejections and resubmissions and being able to see the positive in it and all the best for the next chapter after this postdoc ends and hopefully many more papers to come. Thank you Jennifer and thank you for such a fantastic opportunity. I really think this is a great initiative and I would yeah I, I really appreciate the opportunity to to join you today. It's been only a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. Hopefully it's given you some insight into the process of academic writing and approaching that first academic paper. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more of this show, please subscribe to this podcast. A huge thanks again to the Centre of Excellence for Paleoscience for supporting this work.